Hi everyone, I'm Natalie. Welcome back to The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives Geneva. On today's episode, our director, Francesco Pisano, speaks to historian, author and researcher Katarina Rietzler about her new book, co-edited with Patricia Owens and published in January this year, called Women's International Thought, A New History. Dr. Rietzler speaks about why she wrote this book after realizing numerous women in history have researched and published in the field of international public affairs, but only a few were actually present in the documented history of international relations as a discipline, but also in international thought. And although the book pays tribute to otherwise marginalized female thinkers, she also stresses the importance of not predetermining, romanticizing, and generalizing women's intersectional contributions to international relations purely on their gender. You'll hear why and much more in the conversation. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the next page of the podcast designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today, I'm joined, I must say again, by a friend of our library, Katarina Ritzler. She's a researcher. She just published, together with Patricia Owens, another book. And she's back in the library. The first, the first time she was here in person, before the pandemic, of course, for uh, a discussion that we had in our library, and now she's here as the co-author of a book by the title Women's International Thought, A New History. This is so compelling, so interesting to me and to our audience, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Katarina, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me on again. It's it's a real pleasure, and uh, it's it's a shame I cannot be in Geneva in person, but uh, it's it's wonderful to do this online. Thank you so much for taking the time. Now, not everyone listening to the next page may know you, so tell us a little bit about yourself and also how you came to researching women in international relations. Um, very happily. So I um, I am a lecturer in American history at the University of Sussex in, in England, and I teach mostly international and American history. Um, I was trained as an international historian in London, and then I completed a postdoc uh, at Cambridge University, where I became more interested in intellectual history and the history of international thought, more specifically. So um, my route into this project was actually... Uh, quite circuitous. I, I didn't start out uh, looking at, at women. I started out as a historian of American philanthropy, of the discipline of international relations, and then also the wider academic field of international relations, because um, the discipline it, itself sort of underwent a process of formation um, in, in the mid-20th century. And um, I researched this both with reference to the United States and Europe. So after working on this topic for a good decade and always having, having having taken a rather wide lens to this history of international relations, to this disciplinary history. I, I always included things such as activism, but also education, civic internationalism. And, and having done this research over many years, it was very clear to me that, that there were many women who actually thought, researched, published on international affairs, but that few of these women were present in the historical record, in the history of international relations as a Discipline and also the history of international thought, which is a wider field that has become really very vibrant in the last uh, 10 years or so. Um, so 
women were systematically marginalized, of course, but they were also really present at these key locations, um, whether these uh, locations were international organizations, conferences, um, often international conferences, interdisciplinary conferences, academia, think tanks, uh, philanthropic foundations, certain professions, etc., etc. Women were there, but they weren't there in the literature. So to me, it was really the empirical evidence that, that I uncovered while working on another project um, that convinced me that we needed uh, more scholarly analysis. And um, the question to me was, what would happen if you systematically gathered that evidence and then asked the question, well, what does it mean for international thinking that these women were present? So I um, thought it would be interesting to use this question um, or to use this project of looking for women as a kind of heuristic device um, and without the predetermined assumption that would, what would you then uh, discover would be a, um, a genealogy of feminist international relations because quite possibly you wouldn't find that. So this was um, the route into the project and uh, back in 2015 I co-organized together with two other historians, Valeska Huber and Tamsin Peach, a, a small workshop and this is where I met uh, Professor Patricia Owens who you've already introduced who is my co-author and also my co-editor for this book Women's International National thought a new history and then Patricia came from a background as an IR scholar, as an international theorist. She had written a book on Hannah Arendt's uh, international thought. And together with Kimberly Hudgens, uh, who's a feminist theorist, we embarked on a cross-disciplinary project because it, it felt important to really do this across the disciplines of, of history, intellectual history and IR. And um, we embarked on a project uh, that is uh, co uh, that is funded by the UK-based Leverhulme Trust and this edited volume that I'm introducing today is the first uh, book-length outcome of this project. This is super interesting. Um, before we delve into the book and how you recovered, basically, if I can say so, the histories of the stories of 18 leading women thinkers um, that, that basically come through, are resurrected, I, I should say, through, through the pages of, of the book. Before we go there, let's stay a little bit here on general terms. Uh, I have you here, you're a woman researcher, and um, I would like to hear from you what do you see from a researcher point of view, also being a woman researcher, uh, in terms of what is the state of play today um, um, regarding women influence on international relations. Now what we know is this, is, the, is that international relations, women were very present at the beginning of the last century, then they got somehow raised by men from, from the history, and then what we see from the 90s, this progressive um, opening and inclusivity of international relations, still a lot to work to be done there, but, but you know, things like social summits and Agenda 2030 itself are clear signs that international thinking and multilateralism, for that matter, are opening up. And there, there is something to be acknowledged and celebrated, which is the power of women's thought and action in international cooperation. This is absolutely evident, uh, at least for, for people like me who work in the UN. So, for you as a researcher, what is the state of play? What is that you see from your standpoint in terms of the impact that women influence is having on international relations and international thinking? 
I mean, it, it is really interesting for me always to listen to practitioners because that is obviously a different perspective. I'm a historian. I'm mostly interested in the past and how it has or often has not shaped our present. Um, so to assess the present state of play is, is, is more difficult for me. I mean, I have some more abstract questions um, about the concept of, of influence. What do we mean by influence? Do we mean representation? Do we mean decision-making, real political power? Do we mean women as foreign policy intellectuals? And, and undoubtedly, over the last um, 40 years or so, there, there has been real change. There have been many gains for women. And if I think only of the United States, for example, um, we see the emergence of some, some really influential foreign policy intellectuals on actually fairly much across the political spectrum, both liberal and conservative um, thinkers uh, such as Jean Kirkpatrick, Condoleezza Rice, Anne-Marie Slaughter, Samantha Power. So, so there, is, um, there is a sense that there are powerful women with real intellectual heft. Um, but does this mean that women as, as a group globally can defend their interests and who says what these interests are? I think there's actually quite a lot of um, of debate and and maybe even conflict uh, regarding these these questions. And I think what we are also seeing is a, a bigger accentuation of divisions among women across various axes. Um, race is often mentioned. Class, caste is another one. Nationality. Um, so, I mean, from my perspective as a as a researcher. Um, uh, obviously, we have also come a long way there in terms of the representation of, of women in the academy. And um, it was important to us to capture this um, these these changes. And um, as part of this larger Leverhulme project, we have actually recorded a series of oral histories with, with women scholars, with um, senior women scholars who work in the field of international relations and who reflect on their career paths. And um, that is that is another resource that we have created because I think the, the question is important. Um, more personally, as a researcher, I think... Um, what the project has, has given me is is a new appreciation for women's writing, um, its complexity, its richness, its diversity. Um, it is a fantastic heuristic device and uh, working with students who have worked on women thinkers, I, I think it is also genuinely empowering for, for women students. So um, that is a, a payoff of this, um, of this wider project within the academy. Great. So let's go back to the book now for our deep dive. Uh, for those who had not the chance to to, to read the book, um, this part of our podcast wants to be a little bit like a, a, a flyover so they can have a, a sense of what they can find in the book when they finally uh, acquire it and, and read it. So first, my first question to you would be to tell us a little bit, why is this a new history? I, I gather that this book has a revisionistic, a revisionist, part uh, to, to, to it. So there is not only recovering these this 18 personalities, but it's really crafting a new narrative while doing so. So why did you call this book a new history? Um, it is a new history, but it obviously builds on significant prior research. And um, that's why it was important to us uh, to put together a fairly large edited volume and to really bring in experts in their fields of writing about women thinkers. So um, 
the first reason why this is a new history is because it brings together separate and sometimes quite disparate forays into this history of women's international thought. People have been working on this for, for a while, but we felt there was a real need to bring people together into conversations and also to really do this across disciplines um, because there, there is a lot of research going on, but sometimes people don't necessarily talk to each other. So that's one reason. The other um, way in which this is a new history is um, I think the sustained attention it pays to the history of um, black women's inter international thought. Um, uh, black women's international history has, has always been internationalist um, and it's usually considered separately owing to um, the racialized and also gendered history of international relations. So that was another concern that we had. Um, and uh, finally, we thought um, that the title New History would be apt because indeed, as you already um, alluded to, we, we really want to push for a rethinking of the gendered history of IR because um, it is not just about uh, recovering contributions to existing paradigms, existing conversations. It's also about really challenging those paradigms. And, and I can provide a couple of examples um, for that. Um, and I suppose we also wanted a fuller consideration of the mechanisms which turned international relations as a field. And it was hugely diverse in the early 20th century. We had, we had um, even um, scholars from the natural sciences thinking that they were doing international studies. And, and then it became a much more narrow and very Anglo-American discipline in the mid-20th century. So, so we thought... Um, that recovering women's contributions would also shed a light on these mechanisms. Um, I would be very interested in these examples you want to, uh, to, to bring to the audience from, from the book. Um, once we read the book, what would you say are the most salient findings of this research? Um, how does the book expand these locations, genre and practices of international thinking? So maybe to um, give prospective readers, if, if I may do that, a, a bit of an overview, we decided to group the book into three sections. And that was um, we did that very deliberately because this is where we wanted to stake out the debate. So we have one section on canonical thinkers, which um, presents women who are already um, appreciated in their respective disciplines, but who are sometimes or often not read as international thinkers. So those are the canonical women. Then we had a section on outsiders, people who were in many ways sort of very left field as intellectuals. You wouldn't necessarily recognize them as, as thinkers or as intellectuals, and, but still they made important contributions and we wanted to bring them in. And then the final section of the book is the academy, because yes, obviously there were many important women scholars who made uh, significant contributions. Um, sometimes they were marginalized, but they still had their place in the Academy. So um, the different debates here were about scholarly recognition and how it is readable um, and also the impact of certain ideological and political commitments that then ensured marginalization. But in terms of the examples in which this is maybe a revisionist history, um, so to provide one example is I mean, the best-known tradition in IR is, is surely realism. It's, um, it is still something that, that scholars re reflect on um, all the time. Um, and uh, the, this, this kind of history of realism has, has also been written many times, the way in which realism constructed this, this very... Um, distinguished um, all-male canon from Thucydides to Machiavelli, Hobbes, Carr, Morgenthau. And um, 
as we show, or as indeed our authors show in, in this book, women were actually present at the creation of, of realism. They were actually there and they made distinct contributions that really question some of these tendencies we commonly see in realism, the kind of um, geopolitical thinking, the anti-democratic tendencies of, of, the, of the realists. So if you read somebody like Morris Tate, who is an African-American scholar who is receiving a lot of recognition right now, but for, for a long time she was, uh, she was fairly unknown in mainstream IR. Obviously, she, she was always recognized even um, when she was alive as, as, a, as a fantastic scholar. She, she had that recognition in her lifetime. But if you read her work, um, she's certainly a small R realist, but she very much challenges these, these blinkers, especially when it came to race, especially when it came to empire, but also when it came to issues such as public opinion. So if you read her work, which is realist in its own way, it makes you really rethink realism as a part of of the canon. Um, and, and I think that that is one very important outcome of, of this wider project. Um, and I, I think some of the other, um, some of the other results from this research that, um, that were, uh, that we found significant was, um, the prompting of some of this work to rethink moments of crisis. If you think about IR as a discipline, it, it's the chronology is always structured around crisis or great debates, but, but actually once you, um, try to find women at these moments, it, it makes you actually reassess how these crises or debates played out slightly slightly differently. And then another a third interesting finding that we saw when we put the chapters together was the centrality of, um, of empire and of globalities. I mean, that is obviously... Um, always present or often present in, in black women's international thought. But we also saw this theme in, in, other, in other contributions in, in the work of some of these other thinkers. So um, another example maybe is uh, Emily Bork, who is already quite well known as a thinker. But um, the global scope of her thinking was really striking, ranging from um, immigrants uh, that um, from the Austro-Hungarian Empire to America and issues of Americanization to her interest in American intervention in Haiti and how she actually connected these different strands in her in her thought. Before we go to, maybe you have other examples, and I'm sure that our audience would be super interested in that, but I would like to go back to something you said uh, about international thinking and how it shapes around moments of crisis. I think it's very interesting if you could just elaborate a little bit more on your findings there. For one, for one thing, because we are in a moment of crisis um, due to the response to the pandemic, and we are observing at the level of international um, uh, community, at the level of, uh, you know, practice of multilateralism, maybe not philosophical crafting of uh, AR thinking, IR thinking, but at least at the, in practice, we are witnessing how with the, the presence of women in decision-making um, makes a difference in terms of crisis. So I'm very curious, what did you find in your historical research that could contribute to people understanding what is the role of women thinkers in crafting IR around moments of crisis? 
So I, I think, um, and um, I'm not sure how, how helpful this is, but one important crisis, obviously, in the 1930s is the is the rise of um, fascism, um, the uh, threat coming from Nazi Germany, and the question of appeasement. And um, in a chapter by Lucian Ashworth, we have... Uh, a group of women thinkers who come to very, very different conclusions when it re- when it comes to the question of appeasement. They all argue from a certain positionality. They all argue, they all make sort of maternalist, feminist arguments, but they actually come to different answers. So I think the lesson from that particular episode is to, um, to not predetermine women's contributions, uh, women's intellectual contributions to to see that there are multiple answers, that there's a certain kind of openness and, and maybe also to not romanticize it. So another example from the book is um, a, a working class African-American intellectual called um, um, Mitty Maudlina Gordon, uh, who who was um, was arguing for an alliance of African Americans with Imperial Japan in um, in the era of um, of World War II in the run up um, to World War II, and and she um, she uh, paid dearly for this. Uh, she she ended up um, getting um, I, I think she ended up in in prison. So I, I think that that uh, those are two important caveats when we look. At women's international thought, um, I, I, I think there, there is a there has to be a recognition that not all of this thought is maybe admirable, or we might not share some of these conclusions. But um, there is a certain uh, positionality often um, introduced into international thinking if we look at these women thinkers. And in the case in the case of Gordon, um, clearly she is speaking from from a position of an of an African American who is who is oppressed um, also as a, as a working-class black woman. Very interesting. Thank you for that. I wonder if there is one of these 18 personalities that appear throughout the book that you would like to highlight for the benefit of our audience, maybe not, not necessarily the one you prefer, but the one that, that really struck you as this is a case, this is why we've been doing this research. Is there such a fear? Um, I mean, they're they're obviously um, it, it's hard to pick. I, I think all the chapters are really are really interesting. Um, uh, we have some some figures that you you probably wouldn't expect. Um, so so I, I would like to encourage readers to read all of the chapters. Um, but personally, as a specialist, really on the interwar years, um, I, I sometimes like being pushed a little bit bit earlier. And um, one one figure that I thought is is really worth reading. Uh, um, is Anna Julia Cooper. She's she's another um, African American intellectual. She's she's already recognised. She's one of those canonical um, figures. Um, but it's it's really only uh, thanks to Vivian May, who who wrote the essay on her, that that her international thought is is now readable. And um, I think she's remarkable because she's often regarded as as an important, specifically African American woman thinker. She she's a she's a club woman. She's a very famous educationalist, um, and and she is also an amazing writer. Her prose is is just so 
rich, appealing, and and just beautiful. Um, it's it's worth reading her, and um, she she's also a well published writer. So somebody who, even in the eighteen nineties, manages to um, to gain intellectual recognition. She publishes a book uh, called A Voice from the South that that um, that indeed make, makes her famous. But there's this other side to her. She's also even though she has to she has to earn a living. She she is a teacher for most of her life. She manages to go to France. She studies at the Sorbonne. She gains a PhD and she looks, her thesis is on international relations. It is on the history of the French Empire and it is again on Haiti. And she develops a methodology for making um, voices that are usually not heard in accounts of the French Empire for making these voices heard. So she is one of those women who is present at the creation of international relations as a field. Her supervisor is uh, her doctoral supervisor, is somebody called Celestin Bouglet, um, who is who's very much involved in all of these efforts to create a new science of international relations. And she is there, but she's not there. She's not included, but she's there as a kind of a thorn in the side of, of Bouglet. Um, she challenges him. She contradicts him. Um, she is, I think, probably as, as a result of that, excluded from, from these networks. But but she is there and her history is really important if we want to understand where international thinking comes from, also in its more established, uh, recognized form. Um, a final word on her. I, I think what she also does is to bring back the history of education into international thinking. I mean, obviously, um, that has always been a field that has been dominated by women, whether that's in national school systems or at the international level. There, there are numerous women who are important there. Fanny Fern Andrews is, is another woman that could be mentioned here. But I think when you actually read Cooper's writing, it's really striking to what extent um, she analyzes the importance of women's education in world order terms. So for her, this isn't just about um, including women in, in citizenship. She sees this as something that could potentially change the course of international relations, that could um, change things in, in civilizational terms even, that could prevent war um, and conflict in future. So so you see this already um, back in the 1890s. It's it's and we are still making similar points today. I think uh, there is a the long-standing discussion about the role of women as educators, educators for peace, etc. But these arguments are really very old, and it's worth going back to them. This is super interesting, and indeed, um, it is both encouraging and discouraging at the same time that <laughs> these things were raised. Um, uh, already in the 1800s, and we're still debating them. Um, and I think this is a perfect segue to what I wanted to discuss with you next, which is, you know, when I when one hears you talk about the research that had to go into this to resurrect these 18 characters that were there at the beginning of international uh, thought and that participated and they were variously either excluded or uh, deleted from, from the recorded history, so much so that you had to rec recover them like in an exercise of, of intellectual or research archaeology, then one wonders... What constitutes international thought today? What is the matter, the body of knowledge we're looking at? Is it distorted uh, because of, of, of this action of raising and excluding and also resurrecting? What is the body of, body of knowledge objectively in front of us that we call international thought today? 
I I think in some ways um, there there are obviously continuities. In international thought is in some ways where it has already been in, in the mid twentieth century. So in, in academia, in, in think tanks, in also in in uh, international organisations and diplomacy, and all of these locations are much more open to women now. If we take the example of think tanks, for example, the um, the Council of Foreign Relations, which is the most established think tank in, in the United States, it it decided um, I I. Um, the date escapes me, but uh, it, it was one of the trailblazers um, for establishing a dedicated program on women in international relations. So we also have a lot more institutional buy-in today. Um, so institutions, powerful institutions, really specifically promoting women's international thinking. I, I think that's um, that's a that's a key difference. But I think if we look at the um, historical record, which shows us that um, sometimes international thinking gets women into trouble. It gets them fired from university posts. It um, it gets them arrested, um, or it gets them sort of put into a, a certain box. Um, and we we have one essay in the volume written by Tamsin Peach, another really great piece on a woman thinker who was a, a Christian scientist, and and she had her own rather um, eccentric millenarian view on international relations. She was also a techno optimist and and for our perspectives today she, she is just too strange too eccentric um, to really include as a, as a sort of canonical thinker of international relations but nonetheless her thought on empire in particular is very interesting so I think if we think about international thought today yes we should look in the usual places which has become much more open but we might also think about um, dissident thinking thinking that seems to be beyond the pale and that is maybe uh, conducted by women who are having trouble finding a platform, a publisher who are writing blog posts, posting anonymous comments on, on social media, on, on Twitter, um, etc. So so there must be a body of thought that, that remains on, on the margin, uh, even though the process of marginalization probably looks different due to changes in in technology and i think there's there's another interesting phenomenon that we that we see today um of of writers who are creating a a, a female voice who are impersonating women I'm, I'm thinking in particular of the um 2011 uh, hoax um the um what was that? The uh, gay girl in Damascus blog. Um, so that was a, a blog written by by an American who was living in Edinburgh, who was pretending to be a Muslim lesbian woman living in Damascus at the time of the um, of the uh, revolt against the regime, sort of caught up in in this uh, in this uh, disintegrating country. Um, so. so uh, a narrator created a, a voice, a supposedly authentic voice, and, and did that because of that reason. And it turned out to actually be an impersonation, a hoax. So I think that's an that's a really interesting phenomenon today. That um, that that tells us also something about identity and 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 women's identity and how it is deployed strategically by writers um, for whatever reason. I you know, don't want to go into the ins and outs of this story, but I, I think it seems interesting and remarkable today. A lot of matter for reflection there, and thank you for bringing this. I, I didn't know about this, and um, I'm sure that a lot of uh, people listening to this podcast will look into this story and reflect more on it. I would like to, to go back to the role of women. After all, uh, the, the, the book you co-author with Patricia Owens is Women's International Thought. So back to women now. I would like to ask you how this 
act of research, and of course publishing, but it's the act of research interests me, um, combine with and support gender studies? I mean, um, gender studies is, is obviously a, a vast and expanding field. Um, it's, it's concerned, yes, of course, with women, but also with gender in a broader sense, with, with masculinities, um, men, the sort of plethora of identities, sexualities we, we see today. So, so the, it, is, it is a much broader field. It also has a strong theoretical bent, um, political commitments. There are many arguments about also feminism here as, as theory but also as practice and about the plurality of feminism different feminisms and in that sense i think we make a contribution because we do show a rather a diversity of of um, international thinking of women's thinking that is not always feminist um so so i think that is maybe an an interesting result uh, for gender studies scholars um the project is in an older tradition it's a project of of recovery Recovery. recovery is sometimes seen as an old-fashioned pursuit, but if anything, we want to encourage um, scholars who are, who are maybe um, of a more theoretical persuasion to, to revisit recovery and, and to really um, uh, rediscover the past and to regard these thinkers as potential resource and, and also as a resource that challenges um, sometimes a slightly teleological thinking of, of a trajectory of the sort of you know old-fashioned feminism of the past uh, and now we are in a different place we we have sort of seen seen the light but but maybe things are not always as as linear as this and i think especially when you look at thinkers of the past somebody like anna julia cooper for example and the arguments they made it's it's interesting to see um the overlaps but also the divergences with today so it is it is a recovery project i i do think recovery remains important um also for gender studies and it's it's an invitation not everybody wants to do it that's fine but uh, it might be interesting for people to revisit i think the message was heard katarina ritzler as we wrap up um, today's podcast any final thoughts that you wish our audience to remember on this subject of women in international relations um I, I suppose the only other message I'd like to bring across is that women thinkers are actually surprisingly easy to find. Um, when we started out with this project, uh, we, there were some skeptical voices who said, well, you're not going to find anything. And, and indeed, that has not been the case. We found too much, really, and we, we had to make some very hard choices in, about what to include. So for anybody who's interested um, to hear more about our research, um, please visit our website. Um, it's hosted by the University of Oxford, where the project is located. Uh, just search for um, History of Women's International Thought and Leverhulme Trust. Um, we have a number of articles that are also published or in the pipeline, so please do look out for my colleagues' writings. Um, that's Patricia Owens, Kim Hutchings, Sarah Dunstan, and also Joanna Wood. Um, that's, that's our team. And uh, maybe a final, um, uh, a, a final uh, sort of... Um, uh, um, announcement I, I, I could make if, if that's okay. And um, we have another forthcoming publication, which is an anthology of women's international thinking, which is much broader and contains over 100 selections of um, women's international thinking. And uh, that's forthcoming also with Cambridge University Press uh, later this year. 
this is very exciting and uh, and the head as the head of the library here i i look forward to acquiring that anthology as well katarina ritzler thank you for taking time to to speak on the next page our podcast to advance the conversation on multilateralism and i think this podcast in particular advances that a lot we hope to see you back in person in our library one day soon and we wish you all the best for your research thank you thank you very much indeed So, that was historian and researcher Katerina Rietzler talking to our director, Francesco Pisano. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you'd like to know more about Dr. Rietzler, the book, or anything else covered in the episode, you can find all the relevant links in our show notes. And if you liked the episode and want to share with us a review or a comment, we would love to hear from you. And if you want to keep up with us here at the UN Library and Archives Geneva, you can follow us on our Twitter, which is at UNOGLibrary, or on Facebook, just search for United Nations Library and Archives Geneva. Thanks so much for joining us. See you soon.